Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini-meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. So, Roland, thank you for coming in again. It was a pleasure speaking with you um, at the last interview, and I'm really looking forward to this one. It's my pleasure. I, I know that the <laughs> we can go from subject to subject with you. It's sure. really fun. Uh, you had mentioned the last time that uh, you were interested in... Um, uh, thorn.org, right. which is about sexual exploitation of children and so right. on. So I'm just going to let you get started. Okay, well, that particular organization is um, is a more of a software interest that actually creates software to help law enforcement stop child trafficking okay. and, and put an end to it. Um, they're credited with many thousands of, of saves and child retrievals. Um, and I'm sure they were involved with this latest one, actually, that happened, uh, oh, gosh, where was that? And I just read it recently on Facebook. There was like 130 children that were rescued. Oh, in Michigan. Michigan, yes. right. So it's, you know, and they work on an international level. So, they, you know, they're really trying to go ahead and, and make a difference out there. And there's actually very little in terms of resources that the law enforcement actually has to track these particular kinds of crimes. So... Actually, I think it's, it's it's a need. It's actually something I'm looking to get deeper into, possibly even um, you know get a job with them because what I do now is in the software industry is just fine. But I think I'd like to go ahead and and get a little deeper in that and work at software that has a deeper purpose. Okay. Yeah. So um, I was looking at their their website and then there's other. Uh, nonprofit organizations that uh, are also involved with you know with the same sure. mission, mm-hmm. but it seems Thorn is taking a different approach. They're actually looking at the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the technology and, and creating technology and delivering that technology so that it's just easier to track and easier to go ahead and rescue these children. Um, and I don't think people are aware. Um, certainly, I have to remind my own kids quite a lot how quick this happens. This doesn't just happen to children that are neglected or left alone for a bit. It doesn't, it's not that at all. Um, if your child fits a demographic that they're looking for, it only takes a few seconds of the mother's inattention to that child in public and that kid could be less than three feet away from mom and that kid could be snatched and thrown into a van very quickly. And that's, you know, that's scary. That's scary, but it, it's true. Well, are they just like walking along the street and snatching Oh, anywhere. Them, anywhere you happen to be a target. the grocery store? You could be walking along the street. Somebody stops and asks you for directions, possibly the very same van that actually has somebody in the back who will take your child. And they step out and they grab your child and hand around the mouth into the van and drive off. You're not even aware that they have your child. Not a sound was made. And they drive off and then they're off in the distance and you notice your child's not following you. Um, it's, it's just out of sight for a moment is all it takes. Well, you're scaring me a little bit here. It is, it is a little yeah. scary, you know, and, and I don't want to parent, I don't like living in a paranoid world, but I'm one of those people who likes to protect particularly small children. I've always been that way my entire life. Of and, course. um, so 
you know, even when I was a small child. <laughs> so this, this bothers me on a very deep level. So, and I think it probably bothers most people on a very deep level. So of course, like, you know. well, you know, we don't want to be losing our children one way or the other, oh, sure. or our teenagers. You know, it's not just uh, you know small, the younger children following mom down the street, but we're talking teenagers that are sitting mm-hmm. and uh, getting involved with people oh, sure. on the internet. Yes, and there there's been instances where a lot of times, you know, mothers are very busy people, and sometimes, especially single mothers or mothers that are by themselves in the middle of the day, and they put their kid in the car thinking, oh, I forgot something, and they go back into the house for a few minutes, and they come back out, and that kid's gone. Um, and, you know, that's that happens, and you just can't do that. I mean, you kind of have to treat that kid like your most valuable possession, because they are. They are. It's a bar of gold, or whatever you want to call it, but it's, that, that child is your most valuable possession. possession and, or, I shouldn't call them a possession, they're our child, but still. Um, and you got to treat them like that. A moment's of inattention, and somebody comes and Somebody can come and take that. It just seems it's gotten uh, really bad in the last maybe 10 years, more so than, than before. You know, uh, our parents' generation didn't have to deal with the same problems that parents are dealing with now. Yeah, I think it's always been a problem. It's just getting worse. I think with sort of the, um, and I hate to get any kind of a political thing, but I think with open borders going on, with people actually you know claiming sanctuary cities, and the traffic seems to be flowing between southern borders a lot of these kids are going south they're being taken south so through mexico and so forth so do they end up overseas like in taiwan or i don't know about overseas i haven't read about any of those cases i have read about them actually you know being taken over the border and um that's you know that's horrific that's absolutely horrific it shouldn't happen to anybody but it happens okay Yeah. yeah All right. Well, if anyone is interested in, in uh, more about this organization, they can go to... Thorn.org. Right. And, and you know, if nothing else, make a donation. Make a regular donation. They're doing good work. Um, it is... Consider it like a startup software company. Most startup software companies I could really care less about, uh, unless they're doing something great, like a cool game. <laughs> could really care less about. But this one, actually, I, you know, I think it's something that's worth caring about. They're doing something worthwhile. Okay, very yeah. good. Yeah. And um, that's about it. You want to talk about anything else? I would Weird love stuff? to. You know what? I just saw some posts on uh, Facebook the other day on uh, ANSA Paranormal, ah. which is, which is uh, you're the admin for that page. Yes. And talking about uh, the lost ships in the desert. Ah, uh, yeah. The... Um, there's actually a couple, and I think, you know, I've started going through recently the internet feeds on these kinds of things. I've known about these stories for years, because um, many of them go back many years and were published in like the Orange County Register and things like that in the 70s. And so I've known about these stories for years, but it seems with a new crop of people that are interested in these things, all these rumors just come up. It's kind of like that game where you tell your friend a story and oh. by the time it goes around the circle, it changes. So everything changes about the story as it evolves. but. And, and sometimes people confuse, there's actually two ships out here, uh, at least that I've been aware of. I haven't seen them personally, but the stories are two ships, both reported on, one more officially than the other. The, there's one, a Spanish galleon, which was lost in the upper part of the Salton Sea when it used to extend in, into what is now Indio, into that area. Okay. And the Salton Sea actually extended that far, and the Spanish were looking for another avenue to get to the Pacific. And they were explorers. 
they whether they had gold or not, I don't know. That was part of the legend that was added in 1870s by Charlie Klesker, but I think he was interested in that. Yeah, makes a better story. Yeah, it does. So they, and this is according to the records in Spain. Apparently in 1984, and this was information that Mara uh, Costo actually had discovered. Um, in 1984, apparently there was a newspaper, a San Francisco newspaper, which did a follow-up on this with the government of Spain and wanted to know if there were any records of such a ship. And, and indeed there were. They found the records, 16-something, when the, the ship was coming through, and that it was, uh, they couldn't salvage it because as they were going up the Salton Sea, and there's a shelf that separates the northern part from the southern part of that Salton Sea, uh, I guess there was an earthquake that occurred, or something, and they couldn't get the ship back out because th- there was obviously no outlet to the Pacific, but they couldn't get back out. And they had no choice. They had to abandon the ship, take what they could, go on foot, and go back down south. Um, So that's how the ship ends up there, at least according to the record. But how did it get there? Well, they they sailed up the Salton Sea. From where? From the the ocean. Actually, it used to connect to the ocean at one time back then. They actually had it connect the Salton Sea to the Pacific. And as the water tables change, as the earthquake occurred, the Salton Sea was shallow to begin with. And they just got stuck up there. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to envision which river it would have been that took them there, but it's actually, gone I've seen, now. Yeah, I've seen, well, it is gone. You can actually see it through satellite images, you know, where the flows might have been. Um, but that was the story. That's what, and thanks to the San Francisco paper, whichever one it was, that, that did the story. But um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, so if you go to the native legends... And, th- and this is where you know, my conversation with Mara was pretty interesting because her story very much dovetails with the native stories that I had read. And what the native stories were was that, and it certainly what interested Mr. Charlie Klesker in the 1800s, uh, was that they talked of this lone tree which stood out in the desert and that a large bird sits on top of it. And the way they were describing this, apparently Charlie Klesker said this sounds like a mast of a boat the way they're describing it. And so years go by and he's researching and people have seen it, reported it. Many people have. Unfortunately, Charlie Klusker never got a chance to really do anything with it. But so can I just interrupt you here? Sure. Explain who Charlie Klusker is? He was just a guy looking to make his fortune, coming out west like everybody else. Okay. And, you know, actually it was the early 1800s because he missed, he was here just before the gold rush and he figured out there's nothing here and he left back to Texas. And then the gold rush broke and he came back and said, where? <laughs> and it was pretty much played out by the time he came back. So, <laughs> poor well, they called him Lucky Charlie, right? Exactly. <laughs> but he did happen, but he did actually, you know, key on that story that he was told years earlier. And I like, see. Okay. Right. And so, so he was going on a treasure hunt. Exactly. And he really tried. He, he got supplies and got out there. They say he came within view of it. He could actually see it, but it was so far across the sands and, they were out of resources. It was extremely hot, um, just unbearable. And then the animals wouldn't take it anymore, so they turned back. I see. Yeah, and that was that was about it. But and is that like the the last recorded sighting of it then? There have been others who I've recorded around that time frame and in the early 1900s. I I would suspect over time and as development happened that maybe that timber fell over and the cloth is now since gone and it's now just relegated to legend, but if you probably dug under the ground, you probably would find a ship, or at least remnants of a ship down there. 
Have you tried uh, Google Earth and going over that area? And have you looked only to confirm that where the the possible shelf might be and where the um, ship might have ended up should it hit shallow waters and stuff. And it's a guess on my part. I know nothing about Spanish galleons, so it's an absolute yeah. guess. <laughs> it's just curiosity for me. <laughs> of course. Yeah. You mentioned there was a second boat. A second boat, something that's been discussed, although I've not seen anything official on it, but for many years, and I would say it's almost one of the same boat, except for the fact it's an entirely different location. This is uh, Anza Borrego Desert, and out there, where uh, hikers, um, not just one set, apparently there was actually several hikers who actually reported remnants of a Viking longboat, complete, you know, well, it was decaying, but they say still at the time, complete with the, you know, over elaborate mast and on the front and you know, the snake head or whatever they had on the front. Um, and they said that it was there. People had reported it and seen it, mostly hikers. And they, from what I recall, it was fairly high up on the hill. So I mean, the ocean must have come in that high at that point. And what time frame was it? Was it a recent folklore or would this, you say hikers are they, you know? Well, this is actually within the, within the 20th century. Okay. And so it's, you know, okay. that they've actually spotted it and saw it. When the Vikings were truly here, I don't know. Um, I know that there's plenty of plenty of artifacts that show other cultures have been here. Um, there's Roman artifacts that they found in 1920s in, in Phoenix or Tucson. What? Oh, yeah. Those are at the university. Roman artifacts. And Romans had the habit of imprinting um, the emperor on their coins and all that kind of stuff. So they actually know the time frame. And this is actually at the, uh, I believe, Arizona State University, uh, these artifacts. They found it while developing. I, I want to say Tucson, but I know it was Bell Road, which puts it on in Phoenix. But um, there's those reports, other cultures that were here. Um, supposedly, what happened to those Romans is on the story, on their shields, I guess they wrote stories of what happened to them. And supposedly, they had gotten lost at sea. They ended up finding, when they finally saw land, they finally landed. And it's a supposition, because we don't have the same understanding of geology uh, or geographic places, um, that they landed probably somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico um, and came to shore. So there might be a boat out there. <laughs> and uh, that they just kept walking uh, in one direction, figuring that it's eventually, that they thought they were on the European continent. They thought eventually they were going to reach the Appian Way and make it home. But they never did, of course. And so when they finally gave up the hope, they set up camp. They tried to enslave some of the Indians to get work done. Eventually the Indians rebelled and pretty much killed them all. So that's pretty much the story there. And that's pretty interesting how many cultures have been here. Okay. And there's uh, Indian lore to back that up also? They have stories there's some Indian lore to back that up. Uh, I don't know where the final chapter to that got written. It might have been on one of the shields from the final Roman soldier. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's the fact that they have those artifacts. And I actually have pictures of some of those artifacts. Um, and those artifacts were found here are incredibly interesting. And we know the time period that it happened. So that's other stuff that's out there. <laughs> Probably on Anza Paranormal too. <laughs> I put a lot of things out there. Yes, I, I, I've seen some really interesting things. Yeah. What I try to do with that Anza Paranormal site is to put things out there that are somewhat verifiable. You can go ahead and actually research this and find out the truth of it or, or 
I try not to put, you know, people with tinfoil hats on, you know, claiming they've been contacted by Zoltan. And uh, I don't. You know, they can put up their own Facebook page. They can do their own Facebook page. I mean, if they've got some proof, I'm willing to put it up, you know, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, I want, I kind of, I'm kind of more along the lines of serious research on stuff, so. Okay. Yeah. I think the last time we talked about um, some personal experiences, and I just wanted to talk some more about Goldie. Goldie, okay. Yeah. So uh, if you go on the internet and you put in ANZA and UFO, then the story of Goldie comes up. Mm. And from what I understand, you may have seen Goldie once, twice, maybe even more times than that. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate sure. more on that? Well, the first time that I was absolutely sure that this was not something explainable like an airplane uh, was probably about, I'm going to say about seven years ago, where my wife and I were on... Inside of our house, where uh, there's a courtyard out there, and we were doing some work, and I was, we were both walking into the house. I looked up, and I saw something which at first I took to be a balloon way up in the sky. This is daytime or nighttime? Daytime, like a balloon way up in the sky. And, and as I looked at it, I called my wife's attention to it because this was not a balloon. This was a a completely spherical object. It looked like brushed metal, and it was turning so very slowly. And I only knew that because it had a dark spot on one side. It was turning so very slowly and moving uh, to the south. So uh, what is this? And I watched it for a very long time till it was out of sight. And it's like it's not a balloon. It's not moving with the air currents. It's, it's propelled in some way. And it didn't move very fast at that point. So, okay, that's interesting. This has got to be Goldie. In the daytime without her makeup. This is Goldie. <laughs> this is Goldie. Okay. Um, yeah, but there's. Now, when, when you said it didn't move uh, quickly and it was some time, are we talking like a, a minute or two? Or are we talking 30 minutes? Well, it seemed like it You're moved. on one side of Anza and yeah. looking, looking. I would think it, it over moved. towards Kauia Mountain. I would say it moved at the speed of what I would expect a jetliner to move at. So it, visually, it's not really fast. But. It was probably moving fast enough because it and made how, it across how, town. How high up would it have been? Well, I, I don't really know how big a sphere it was, but it did appear to me that it was only maybe, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand feet maybe. Ooh. Yeah, not that high. It was just... Like, and it was large enough that you could see detail. It was enormous. It was an enormous ball. And it was just... And the fact that I could see brushed metal and stuff. Now, I've got 20-20, so I, you know, mm -hmm. at least at distance I do. Up close, I'm... You know, my arms aren't long enough, but, but yeah, that was a brushed metal type of thing and very consistent, except for the dark spot on the lower part of it. And any noise associated with that? None whatsoever. None. It was because just... Because an airplane at that uh, height, would have, you would have heard noise coming out. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, now, from where I sit in my house, I can see the mountain, the Kauia Mountain, which my real estate agent, when I sold me, she sold me the house, and after escrow closed, and I was moving things in, she was there, and she said, "Oh, you got a perfect view of Alien Mountain." What? Said <laughs> <laughs> okay. so she. She heard the legends, and she, yeah, okay. So, well, happening long before I got here. <laughs> right. Pika with Anika.
The Coyote. Listen to it. Anza Community Broadcasting KOYT is made possible by generous donations from community members and businesses like the High Country Journal, Anza's free local and independent newspaper, featuring local news, events, advertising, and opinion pieces. Online on Facebook.com slash High Country Journal. The email address is highcountryjournal at gmail.com. And the phone number is 951-970-0074. Are you or someone in your household on life support or other life-saving machinery like oxygen? If so, please contact the Anza Electric Cooperative Office at 951-763-4333 so that your account can be flagged. If your account is flagged, you will be contacted in advance of a planned outage. Since most power outages are unplanned, please be sure to have adequate backup on hand to last several hours. Hey, Anza Valley, support your local radio station. Become a member today. For more info or to request a membership form, you can email us info at koyt971.org. You can give us a call, 951-763-KOYT. That's 763-5698. Or... Contact us via messenger through our Facebook fan page. KOYTLP Anza, your public radio station. Welcome back to Fika with Anika. Those Goldie stories, they go back to the 1800s. I mean, 1870 or so was the very first recorded. They didn't call it Goldie. They didn't call them UFOs. But the Butterfield Stagecoach, um, two passengers recorded it in their journals on the Butterfield Stagecoach on the same stage. Um, one was a pastor. One was a newly, newlywed bride. Um, I guess they were heading to San Diego. I guess the stage was going there. They were running late. They were coming through pretty darn near what is now Highway 79 which is many, much of that used to be the Butterfield stage route. Okay. And as a matter of fact, you can still see the post office from 1858 along the road. If you go by the stagecoach thing there, you can see against the mountains, that old building is the old post office that the stagecoach used to stop at. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Now, so that's, that's how close you are to this route. And as they were coming through, they were concerned that they were running late. They, were, they wanted to be out of the hills before dark. And certainly they weren't going to make it. Um, and as they were, they didn't exactly say where along the line they were, but they said they were near San Diego, so somewhere in Wonga, I would think. Um, they wrote that there was a, a bright, they saw a light coming over the hills on the right. And as it came over, they could see that it was this bright yellow thing, a big ball of light that actually came close to the stage. The horses were getting panicked. The driver was now driving these horses to get them out of the way and get them. but this thing kept up with them and was harassing the horses and was frightening the horses and so the, it was such a traumatic event that the, both the pastor and the bride wrote about it in their journals and then um, they called it though the curse of the dancing sun they attributed it to the Indians in the area who did not like 
you know, white man coming through here or whatever. They didn't, didn't they took offense to, you know, us crossing their lands or whatever. But, okay. but, um, but they, that's what they attributed it to at the time. So it was the curse of the dancing sun. And we know today is Goldie. Mm. Yeah. So the uh, the local Kauia tribe, do they have any stories about Goldie? Anything associated with the mountain? I don't know, actually. And I should, I should probably sit down with, you know, with Mara because she seems to know an awful lot about this stuff and see if she, you know, willing to talk to me about any of that stuff. But uh, um, I don't know. I know that I, I've seen very strange things on the hill. I'm, I'm the first guy to say, hey, that's an airplane. I'm the first guy to say it if it's an airplane. But when it's clearly not an airplane, <laughs> and that's happened. That's happened in 2015, as a matter of fact, in the middle of August. I was that's out, only just a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. Middle of August, I was sitting on my on the veranda out front, and I was, gosh, it was quarter after midnight. I remember that because I thought the time's going to be important after I saw this. So it was a quarter after midnight. Yes, I was out there. Yes, I was having a cigar and a glass of wine. <laughs> and, and um, you know, just enjoying the night. And I saw three things come up. From my vantage point, it was along it was along the same line as what the casino is from my vantage point. But three things came up, and I thought maybe they're fireworks because they had tails on them, like three rockets shooting up all in a straight line. Now, that's awful strange. And I thought, oh, maybe there's a fireworks show going on at the casino. And then each of these lose their tail and just stay suspended as three dots of light. And I'm waiting for the kaboom, <laughs> you know, the, 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 you know, whatever. Is this a firework or what? Yeah. But they, they stop, and they stay suspended for, I don't know, maybe a minute. And then they start moving across the sky, sideways. The lowest one being on this side of Kauia Mountain, so I know at least the lowest one's in the valley, because it's on, I can see the mountain silhouetted behind it. And then it, and they go across, and they get to Thomas Mountain. And then I definitely feel as though somebody told me to look back where they started, because I felt like... It's going to sound weird, but I just feel like, okay, and I look back there. And there was one more that came up and did the exact same flight pattern, just one more. Tail on it, loses the tail, becomes a dot, suspends, and then moves across in exactly the same way. And the, But as they moved across, though, the weird thing was is they expanded. They did expand. So instead of one dot of light, each of them became several lights, bigger, and almost looked like a diamond-shaped type of craft as they went across now. And it's like, okay, this is weird. What is it? And I'm only I see on this because there's got to be other people, people. Look, at, look at this thing. I didn't see any other Facebook feeds or anything like that. But I'm thinking, okay, am I hallucinating here? Actually, there was one other person who later came up and said they saw it. A little bit of a different vantage point. Um, but that was it. That was it. And, um, okay, I don't know what that was. Certainly, if that was Goldie, that was four of them. But I don't know what that was. And then, again, it was quiet. And just moving slowly, no noise. Yeah. And from Kauia Mountain towards towards Thomas, Thomas Mountain, Mountain in that direction. Yeah. And Actually, just, from the other side of Kauia Mountain to the Thomas Mountain. Yeah. And did you watch them till they disappeared? Or oh yeah, I watched until they went till they actually disappeared behind Thomas Mountain. Behind Thomas Mountain. Yeah. Yeah, and then for the next two or three weeks after, I thought I kept seeing one of them just come up behind the mountain. But this is going to sound strange. I understand how this sounds. Trust me, I'm a rational kind of guy. <laughs> and I, I wanted a witness because I kept seeing, it's like maybe a week later, and I kept thinking, I'm going to see it again, I'm going to see it again, right? I'm going to keep looking. So I was diligent about looking. 
And then I kept seeing a light pop up behind Kauia Mountain. And then it would begin to come up, and it was looking very strange and large. And then it would go down again. And would come up. So I called my wife out. Kathy, I want a witness. I want a second witness to this. Every, and it would come up, and every time she came out, it would go down. <laughs> so she, she managed to get a glimpse of, of it for just half a second before, but it's like, okay. She walks in, okay, yeah. We're going to go ahead and get the straight jacket for you now, huh? <laughs> okay. All right, I'm not bringing this up again. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. Well, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, and see, those kinds of things I can't prove, so I can't really put that on ends of paranormal very much. But there's other things that actually, over my 30 years of research on this stuff, and you know, I've been researching weird stuff since way back when. Um, I go on site, I interview people firsthand, I go ahead and I, I, I try to get firsthand account of what actually happened and try to evaluate, am I talking to a rational person here? Am I talking to somebody who fantasizes possibly? You know, how much validity can I put to this and are there other witnesses? And there's actually quite a lot that I've gathered over 30 years. And I've tried to gather evidence. Eventually, you will see on Anza Paranormal something that I've had difficulty with for years. Because it's actually, there's a story that I wrote out there called uh, the Menifee, I think I called it Menifee Lights, on Anza Paranormal. And if you read that story. I did read that. Okay. Yes. Um, a I think of, it was like a three-parter. Yeah, yeah, it was a couple of years ago that the person who was then 15 years old, now a grown-up, um, contacted me a couple of years back and we actually you know, I went through everything with him I wanted to make sure I was recalling this correctly and you know, sometimes memories change over years and she said you know I recall it exactly the same way that you do that's exactly what happened and out of that encounter because the subject of the encounter uh, Mr. JT Dodson um, was killed um, unexpectedly and that's when the whole thing came to an end um, the the tapes, many hundreds of hours of tapes, some of which he showed me, some of which I had never seen before. Tapes of he was making of these encounters that he was having in the hillsides. And this is a local Menifee uh, mm -hmm. gentleman? Yeah. And and one of the things that I've always had difficulty. What happened to the tapes? That you used I have to... the tapes. Okay. I have all of them. Um and in his the notes. Balls, I hope. Yeah, well and, and and one of the things that's always bothered me. And this is probably what's where you're going to see me disappear when I say this. <laughs> so I've said it here, and Annika's got the exclusive. Okay. Uh, this is like the first time I've actually publicly admitted this because there is um, some of these tapes. One I discovered many years ago. Others I only recently discovered. Where on the tapes where he's filming activity taking place among the hills where he's filming this craft, he's actually got on tape. Um, little guys about this big, seriously. I'm not. This is not a joke. I, I, your hand is about a about three feet off the ground, ground, about three four feet high, and I'm, I know that scale because there actually was a in one of these scenes there was a van, a white van, no windows, pulls up um, to a scene of where a crash, which is where how the story began. A crash was noticed in the hillside, and he J T. Dotson noticed it and started filming all the weird activity following up that crash. He, ever since then, from that day to the day he died, he was filming stuff. Well, so there was always activity in the hills, mostly lights and strange things going on. And in this one case, there was this van that pulls up and it goes into the field and he's filming it and he's got his proper equipment. He's, JT's filming it from his garage of what's taking place out in that field just across from his house. 
And there's a guy, I'm estimating from the size of the van, full-size Econoline van, no windows, white. Uh, the guy gets out. I'd say he's probably pretty close to six feet and gets out of the van. No big deal. He opens the doors and these four little four, three to four feet guys get out of the back of the van. And I'm like, what is this? And they look like to be wearing, if I had to evaluate it based on the quality of the video, it looked like a one-piece black jumpsuit, but it about this big. And, he, and they get out of that van. And then they, they do something on the ground. I don't know if it's to pick something up or they wanted to see. I don't know what it was, but they do something. All four of them are squatting on the ground for a bit. And about a minute. And then they get back into the back of the van and the guy closes the doors and he goes to drive off. I'm thinking, what, what so is these this? These are human, humanoid shapes? Yes. Yes. Um, I didn't see any hair. I, didn't, I, I saw it was white head, black jumpsuit kind of thin, about three to four feet high, and that's what's on the tape. And um, as a matter of fact, when I started going through tapes that he never showed me before, I've noticed they're actually in several tapes. Um, sometimes one of them is in and sometimes not, but he's recording this at some distance from his house. It's a few blocks from his house, and he's got it zoomed in. The quality could be better, but it's like, I, this is 1994, 1993, 94. Photoshop and all these fakeries that go on, you know, especially on video, a lot more difficult to do on eight millimeter film, I mean, millimeter of weather camcorder stuff. Yeah. So it's it's very weird, and some of this is having to transfer that over to to digital, which has sort of kept me from um, sort of putting it out there in Anza Paranormal. And I think the moment I do, I'm sure everybody will come up and say that's oh, a fake, and just no, it's part of an investigation that took place that I was involved with personally. And his wife didn't want to see these tapes ever again. So she was afraid of that. She was afraid of that. She had many in her interviews when I interviewed her. She had many frightening instances of things very close to the house. Um, this is one of the newer developments in Menifee at the time. So it was the early '90s. And, you know, those things that, you know, crawling on the roof and stuff like that. She was talking about. And I don't think you know she seemed rational to me. And the kids. Certainly, at the time, one was 15, the other was probably like 9 or 10. Um, and you know, a 9 or 10-year-old can be influenced, I think. And a 15-year-old can probably be influenced, I'm sure. But when I separate them out and interview them separately, which is what I did, and take their interviews, their stories are all consistent. And it's like, this is interesting. And so, yeah. Like I said, I get involved personally and try to figure out things like that. And then I was being followed as a result, and it was... it was. You'd be followed by whom? I don't know, but they made it clear they were following me. And uh, they they even followed me in my crappy little car to Pet Boys, which was, at the time, my crappy little car was always breaking down. And uh, and uh, they followed me there. They they followed me on the on the highway. They uh, Are we talking men in black? Uh, they weren't wearing black suits. They were wearing sunglasses, kind of big guys. Um, they were driving a white van, or a white Bronco. No, not OJ, but a white, <laughs> a white Bronco, blacked out windows. Um, at, some, at one point, there was a Cadillac that kept appearing to a burgundy colored Cadillac with blacked out windows, which kept appearing. Now this is on old Highway 215. So this is the two-lane highway type of deal. It's just like, and in the middle of the night when I'm going to go see JT, there's hardly anybody on it, because you have to understand there's hardly anybody. There, there's no Temecula 
at this point. There's just a few streets named Rancho California at this point, and there's just not really a whole bunch going on out there. So, yeah, and they made it very clear that they were, they were following me. They wanted me to see them follow me. And uh, it was just all very strange. But it happened. It happened. So anyway, that's, the video evidence is there. You know, I will go ahead and eventually digitize all of it, I'm sure, or at least what's important. Do you have a plan for making a book or something from this? Or? Somebody asked me once, a Glenn, some Glendale producer who was into making uh, documentaries about UFOs and stuff like that, asked me if I would give him the stuff to make this, and I kind of didn't really trust him at the time. So I, I didn't want to give him anything, but other than that, no, I've not been approached about writing anything. I um, I look up Menifee from time to time. I hear they still have issues with anomalous lights in the sky and stuff like that. And um, You go to MUFONT or one of the other paranormal... I sent um, some of the stuff to MUFON. Okay. Um, they, they came back, actually, I think it was Bruce McAbee that took a look at it at the time. This is in, in the 90s when he's a naval photographic um, expert. Um, then retired, now probably gone, um, we took a look at it. Some of the stuff he couldn't make out, some of the stuff he didn't really find interesting. I understand that because I sent him everything. And, um, you know, and uh, some of it was just questionable. What, what was it? You know, and I think, you, I think the, uh, the footage that he actually was interested in was a couple of pieces. One that the Sightings episode people, because Sightings was actually interviewing Mr. Dodson, um, as well as the Encounters program at the time. They were going to do a special on him and what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, they interviewed him. Um, even Catherine Kaykoff, the producer at the time, uh, came out and talked to them, interviewed them just like I did pretty much before I got there. Okay. Uh, I guess two weeks before the show was to air, um, they, he was told from the producer that they can't air it that the government won't let them air, air this. This is not going to go on the air. And as a matter of fact, they came out to re-interview everybody. And he says, this, he says the second interview was actually very strange because not only did they separate us, it was almost like telling us what we saw and didn't see. And it was like very strange. And um, he recorded many of his voice conversations with Catherine Kaykoff. And I have those recordings as well. Um, so... So this was all in an era before YouTube or before cable TV and, and things like that. So well, there's cable so, TV, but it's before all the prevalence of like all the fakery that goes on. Yeah, and um, right. But I think more people uh, this day and age are uh, believers in in uh, you know that the, we are being visited. And something's so on. going on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I had to define it based on my experiences, I I don't know that I would define it as something from outer space. I I think that there are are some explanations which should be looked at first because they're in not that they're any less weird but there's it's just very strange but when you take this these instances together and lump them together and you ask yourself what are the commonalities between all of these instances you know, I think a very clear and some might say even disturbing picture can be drawn <laughs> but uh, but I think it's a very clear picture myself and if I go any further with that, you're going to think I'm completely over the cliff. <laughs> so, we won't. <laughs> well, I remember maybe two or three years ago, you put a post out there, and you were wondering if anybody wanted to join you on a Bigfoot hunt. Yes. 
And I remember put, liking that and saying, yeah, I'd be interested, but I don't know if I would actually be because I'm not much of a, a, you well, know, of a hiker and so on. So I if I can do it from the comfort of, of my car, yes. Well, there, yeah, I, have a, I do have a friend of mine. We go camping from time to time and go looking for strange things, including Spanish treasure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, actually, he did have an encounter with a group of people uh, with, a, with a Bigfoot. Um, hiking through an arroyo and he was telling me that it was the strangest thing because he thinks the Bigfoot was following one of the long hair guys because he says the long hair guy had blondish hair very long hair but he, he, the top of his head is the only thing you could see if you were looking across the flat of the ground because they were in this little arroyo walking along and he thinks that you know it's a guess but he says maybe that Bigfoot thought he was another Bigfoot or something maybe that Bigfoot thought that you know because they kept making these noises and, and, and getting closer and closer. And uh, he says when they finally realized what it, what it was and what was going on, it took off. So, okay. Okay. We can go back there and take a look. See what we find. Go dress like Bigfoot. We'll go do that. <laughs> yeah, or at least wear a long blonde wig. Yeah. Are we out of time now? <laughs> <laughs> is this or, enough nonsense for you? <laughs> you know, I'm just not sure where to take it from here. I think maybe we should uh, uh, schedule for another interview another day. Sure. <laughs> At this point, uh, I, I mean, I have goosebumps all over just listening to what, what you have to talk about. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> it's going to take I, me a little time to recover. Yeah, I managed to get a small little snippet of one of those guys I told you about, those little guys on, on my video cameras. I was watching it on the on the video camera, and I did it with my phone. Very like helpful. a screenshot? Yeah. A screen, well, I was actually videoing my phone, okay. watching the thing, and I, and I sent it to my friend, and they're like, okay, that's really weird. What is that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all weird stuff, but I like the weird stuff. Uh, yeah, you do. So if people are interested in um, more about the paranormal, you know, uh, join in to the uh, the Facebook group called Ends Up Paranormal. Paranormal. Yeah. And start following uh, Roland and, 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 the, and the gang there. Oh, yeah. You'll see many of these stories and many more out there <laughs> of things that have happened. <laughs> okay. If you have any questions for my guest, send an email to programming at koyt971.org. And in the subject, put uh, fika, and then in the in the uh, in the body of the text, um, put in your question, and I'll make sure that it, that uh, Roland gets gets it, and we will answer you at the next interview. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. It's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this week's cup of fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at three p.m and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put FICA in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.